Thank you for tuning into the Bird Nerd Book Club. I'm your host, Hannah, bird nerd and semi-avid reader who felt that we need to highlight more bird books and authors. And today I'm happy to welcome Trish O'Kane, author of Birding to Change the World, published by Echo. And this will be widely available in February of 2024. So Trish, welcome to the podcast. Would you please tell us about yourself? Thank you, Hannah. Um, What a wonderful way to start the new year, talking about birds and books. So I, um, I'm from Southern California, raised in Orange County by Irish parents who immigrated in the 1950s. Um, I grew up, was lucky to grow up on an orange and avocado ranch when there still were such things in Orange County. So I kind of grew up outside, but not really appreciating it until I got older. I mean, I loved being outside, but I didn't really think about it. I took it for granted. Um, went to college in Los Angeles studied journalism, and then I went to Central America for 10 years. Um, I'm fluent in Spanish, and I became a human rights investigative journalist. So um, my birding life did not start until I was 44, 45. The first, during my first career as a journalist, I was completely consumed with our species and what the terrible things we do to each other. I was in Nicaragua four years during the revolution and then in Guatemala for six years. I worked for the United Nations um, and then I moved back to the United States. I worked for the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama, doing civil rights and human um, hate crimes research. Um, And then in my mid uh, 40s, I moved to New Orleans to teach journalism at Loyola University. And that's when my birding life began because unfortunately, um, we had just moved there when Hurricane Katrina hit the city and the Gulf Coast and destroyed our neighborhood completely. Filled our little house with, um, our house was only 12 feet, you know, tall or high. And it filled the house with 11.5 feet of water for three weeks, drowned dozens of our neighbors. Um, if we hadn't evacuated, my husband and I, I wouldn't be talking to you. Um, So that was a life-changing experience for me, a wake-up call. Um, I I never, I thought of myself as an environmentalist before Katrina. You know, I bought um, Burt's Bees makeup and I rain, uh, rainforest chocolate bars and, you know, kind of consumption as environmentalism is, is how I see it now. But I never really understood the connections between nature and how we live and, you know, how we can't live without the planet and how water is such a powerful force. But when water enters your home for three weeks and stays there, it's it's a game changer, right? It's not a very nice house guest, to put it mildly. Um, so I didn't understand what had happened to us. I didn't know what a wetland was. Um, people started talking about that word right after Katrina in New Orleans. Oh, what's because of the wetlands? We've lost the wetland filters. And what's a wetland? Okay. And so I thought, you know, um, I've published two books. I've got two master's degrees and I don't know anything about the environment or, you know, how to live on the planet. I'm going to go back to school. So I went back to school to get a PhD in natural resources in Madison, Wisconsin. And that's when my birding life began. Well, it actually began right after Katrina in New Orleans. We were evacuated for months and we we were living in, we went back to Alabama where we had friends and stayed there because the city 
our house was destroyed. We had nowhere to live, but I had a job and I wanted to go back and teach and help the city. So I went back to New Orleans, rented a room in another part of the city that had not flooded. And the first morning that I was back in New Orleans, when I woke up, um, it was so weird, right? Because you're in a city that's most of the people haven't returned. So it's it's a, usually a big bustling, noisy city and you wake up and there's just silence, right? It's 6 a.m. or 6.30 and it's quiet. You can't hear traffic. You can't hear people. It's like, this is really eerie. And then the first thing I heard was this chipping and it was a cardinal. I didn't know, you know, I knew a cardinal, but I didn't know anything about the bird. And I just was so... I looked outside the window and saw it in a bush and it was this beautiful red bird. And I was so happy to see something alive. Um, and so that's, that was the first time I was like, oh my God, you're here, a bird and something alive because a lot of the animals drown. I mean, the city was just, it was, it was stinky. It was scary. It was just a mess after, if, if you've been in a flood zone, it's just, it's a horror movie. It's a sci-fi horror movie. So that's how my birding life began. And, and um, then I took an ornithology class. I think I, I read you took one too, and that's a life-changing experience. I took ornithology and um, I've never looked back since. And now my days are filled with birds and teaching about birds. And uh, so that's what I do now. I write, um, I'm a writer, and I also teach at the University of Vermont. I'm now living in Burlington, Vermont, where I have a program called Birding to Change the World. And that's the name of the book, the title of the book, um, where I pair college students as mentors with kids in local schools. And we take the kids out every week and look for birds, teach them to climb trees, just teach them to be outside and appreciate all the beauty around us, so. Well, thank you so much for, you know, all the very amazing, work that you've done. I mean, with your humanitarian and then transforming that into journalism and with kids out in nature, like you've done so many diverse things in your life. But one of the huge components of this book is your efforts to save Warner Park in Madison, Wisconsin, where you got your PhD. Uh, why did you make the choice to highlight it so heavily in the book? Right. Well, th so the book, the book is a story of, for me, of healing after Katrina, because I was really depressed afterwards and realized I don't know what happened. I don't understand what happened. I don't understand how nature works, how water works. Um, and so I was depressed. And then I decided to go back to school. So we left New Orleans and I got a PhD at University of Wisconsin in Madison. So we moved from the South to Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and we, we got a little, we moved into a little house and it was across the street from this huge park called Warner Park, which is a city park in Madison um, that has a huge community center and it has all kinds of sports fields, but it also has this wild scruffy a hundred acres that happened to be right out side the picture window of the house we moved into. So I didn't know anything about this place at all, but I started taking ornithology and one of the homework, the homework assignment was go somewhere once a week for an hour and look at the birds and write down what you see. And so I'm like, well, I live across the street from this great park. Maybe there's some birds in there. And so I started doing my homework in that park 
And I started with an hour a week and pretty soon it was an hour a day and then two and three hours a day, then all weekend and then owling at night. And I was off the deep end because I started finding so many birds. And of course I was a beginner. So I invited people in from Audubon and they were amazed too, because it was a city park and it was kind of scruffy and people just didn't think of it as a birding hotspot. Um, Long story short, I ended up finding after like five years, 141 species in that park as part of my dissertation field research. Over half of them, long distance neotropical migrants that went to Central America or Mexico in the winter and then came back in the summer to that same park. I mean, that's remarkable. That's a, a city park in a major city in in you know, not a place you, you, I expected, certainly, that's kind of what my bias or my ignorance at the time, to find that kind of diversity. So why did I focus on this part? Well, so, I mean, watching these birds every day just gave me so much joy. And that was the first thing I noticed was, was, was addictive. Like I stepped outside, I couldn't wait to get up and get outside and get into the park, because what am I going to see today? I'm going to see something amazing I've never seen before. And then I'm going to go to the library and read about that book. And I'm going to, that bird, and I'm going to draw the bird. And I'm going to learn its call. And it just, every bird was a universe. And it just completely um, opened new channels in my brain. And I stopped thinking about the hurricane. And I stopped thinking about the world's going to end. And, you know, I just started feeling better and better. It was like, oh my God, no wonder people get hooked on this. Because I just feel like I like I'm another person, like I've been reborn or something. I've, I have a new life, so I fell totally in love with the birds. And of course, because the birds lived there and it was their home, I fell in love with that park. And about a year or two, two years after I just having this fabulous time and I'm meeting birders and I'm becoming a birder, I discovered totally by chance talking to an, an elderly neighbor that the city has a major plan to develop this park. I'm like, what? What does that mean? Develop how? And it started with just there's going to be a sidewalk paved, a paved path through the meadow, like a paved path through the meadow. We already have like a road through the park. What do we need a paved path through the meadow for? And so I didn't want to get involved. I had no intention of getting involved because I was tired after Katrina. I was tired after all these experiences I'd had organizing before. Um, and I was like, no, I just want to hide and bird and be in school, be in the library and not think about the world for a while. I was worn out. But but when I when my neighbor told me about this, I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen to the birds? How will that affect them? I didn't know. And so I got online and looked up the city plan and it was 165 pages or something. And one chapter of six, I believe it was nine chapters, was totally dedicated to the park. And it was going to get a major redo, including the wetland in the middle of it. And I was horrified. I was, I, I was like, oh, this is going to affect the birds, especially the birds that go to Central and South America in the winter. And they're going to come back and their bushes are going to be cut down or part of their wetland is going to be filled in or dredged or whatever. And I just, that's why I devoted so much of the book to the, the, the struggle to save Warner Park because, well, it took over my life. I started the PhD in 2008. Um, I guess by 2000 and, no, 2007, by 2009, from 2009 to 2015, when I stopped, finished the PhD, that's eight years, 
that's what we did. My husband and I going to public meetings all the time. And then my birding changed from going into the park to enjoy the birds to going into the park to find every single species I could so I could go to the Parks Commission and City Council and say, this is a gem. I found this many species this past month, right? And so it became an all-consuming passion. And I, again, I didn't want to do this. I really did not want to do this. My husband certainly didn't want to do it. He wasn't even a birder. And he said, I'm a journalist. I don't get involved. I don't do protest stuff. I'm not an activist. He kept saying that. And then he ends up running the environmental organization we founded, right? So it's because both of us were so horrified after living in Louisiana and seeing what happens when you mistreat a wetland. And then we moved to Madison thinking, oh, this is the green navel of the universe, right? The ec ecological paradise. And then we've got this wetland in this park that the city's talking about paving more of the park, which will, you know, affect water flow and affect the wetland and water quality. And um, and we we just said, well, we're here. We can't watch this happening and not do something about it. And it also um, was a way to kind of, I think, get over Katrina because we couldn't fix New Orleans. But we thought this is what, a little place with a lot of people living around it who love it, a lot of people who are conscious and who care. And maybe if we get together with them, we can do something about it. And we did. And it worked. And Warner Park, we preserved those areas, the wild areas of the park. There are as many birds or more than before. Um, and it's a birding hotspot and people really love it. And um, so I focused on it because that's what I was doing for all that time after Katrina. And also because I thought, you know, if I tell this story, it'll inspire other people to do the same and not give up. Because if you live in a place and you know it intimately, I mean, it's like a lover, you know, and or a friend, you're going to walk away and not defend your place. The place that gives you sustenance, that gives you oxygen and and and, and space to breathe and and to find peace. I mean, that that was my refuge. That if it weren't for that place, I would not have gotten over Katrina as quickly as I did. That place saved me. And I had to step up and try to save it. Well, and I I just love how, I mean, it does take, you know, a bulk of the book is discussing Warner Park and like the efforts that you've made. And I love how, like, you know, I, I felt like I was getting to the end of the, the um, section talking about that. And, you know, more neighbors were coming out of the woodwork to yeah. help contribute. And, you know, your, your neighbor that had the basement full of documents about it, it's yeah. just, it's mind boggling about how, you know, much people love that like a hundred acre section of Madison, Wisconsin, and like that there's all that history that's built into it. And it's just, you, you inspired so many people to come together to protect and preserve something. And you built something amazing out of it. You know, the nonprofit, they formed all of the kids that you brought out to the park to educate them and the mentors at the college that, that participated in that program too. I mean, the, the dissertation that you did, I just felt like was so inspiring because it, it was so interdisciplinary. Like you were banding birds, you were going to city council meetings, you were educating kids. And it's just, I mean, creative to, to come up with something like that and has a real world impact. It's not just a paper that's sitting on the shelf somewhere. Like you, you saved a park that is, you know, beloved. 
Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, it, it wasn't easy, as you know, from reading the book. I was very lucky because my PhD advisor was very much an active muscular citizen who fell in love with the story too. And I couldn't have done it without him. That's Jack Kloppenberg. But the thing I learned though, Hannah, was that, um, and I'm sure it's the same everywhere. I'm Since I'm a journalist, I love talking to people and interviewing them and getting stories. And so I took an environmental history class at the same time as I took that ornithology class. This is before the Warner Park fight. But I started asking neighbors about the park and I learned, and this helped us later organize, that there were a lot of elderly people around the park who loved it very passionately, who weren't happy with what they'd seen over the years. And they started telling me how many more animals there used to be, like there were badgers or there were pheasants and there were all these animals that were disappearing and they were very distressed about it. So we started organizing, but I realized by going through city records and by interviewing a lot of neighbors, we were just another cycle of organizing. People had tried before over and over to protect that park from development. And, you know, these plans, the development plans are cyclical, right? It's like, okay, the city has to build something. People have to do something. Well, you can do something, but do you have to destroy? I mean, we need to start thinking 30, 50 years ahead now, right? Especially with climate chaos. So so we didn't do it. We didn't start it. We just happened to move into the neighborhood when people were discouraged and they'd kind of given up and they needed a little boost. And then I found all these birds and that attracted interest and other allies, right? Like Audubon. Um, so it wasn't me. I was just kind of a spark and I was also privileged that I was a graduate student and had time on my hands. And I had a PhD advisor who really valued doing something that the community would immediately benefit from and that I could document. So it was a kind of a magical, didn't feel that way at the time. It wasn't easy, but, um, but I really am deeply committed to interdisciplinary work and for graduate students and students doing things that matter in their community and not something that sits on a library shelf. I think, you know, the world can't wait. We need to do things in the universities that matter right now and make a difference. Yeah, I think that's that's really important and, you know, great that you had that experience, even though it was frustrating. And as someone personally who is active in my own local political community, it's like I said, it's refreshing to see have someone read about someone having similar frustrations um, with, you know, local elected officials. Uh, what do you think is the best way for those who want to see some action, get something done? Well, um, if you know, you've read the book. And so I kind of try to lay out steps. I'm, I'm going to put online an action guide, but it'll just be an abbreviation of what's in the book. I mean, what I did was I got outside, I started noticing things, I started talking to neighbors and they started giving me information. Um, and then I started going to meetings. Now, the first thing I think is, you know, I, I'm a journalist by training. So all those things were natural to me. Depends on what's your skill set. What do you love to do if someone wants to do something in the community? Well, are you a knitter? Are you someone who's good at baking? Or are you good at doing research? Because, because a, a, you need so many different kinds of people coming together 
for, for an effort like that to be successful. So Wild Warrior, the environmental group we founded literally in our dining room with two apple pies on a Sunday afternoon, is how it started, with eight people and then grew and grew. Um, so many different kinds of people in that group, you know, photographers and people who are super quiet and introverted, but they ride around the park on a bike, just watching and seeing what's going on and kind of like spies, you know, I, so different roles. So you have to know what's your skill set? What do you love to do? What do you want to do? And then find a role, but also band together with others because it's fun. Number one, you can't do it by yourself. Um, we could not, my husband and I could never have done this by ourselves. I mean, Wild Warner still exists. We've left Madison eight years ago and they are still doing amazing work in the community. Um, so, so you have to band together, find a few like-minded people and, and you'll have comrades. You got to have some fun. It cannot be all work and drudgery and frustration. And so, and that's the fuel that kept us going. You know, we all love the animals and we love talking about them. And we did a lot of fun things together. Just Christmas caroling every year, Wild Warner, we would have a music party at my house, our house and walk across the street into the park and go to the old bur oak, which is like the mother tree of the park and circle the bur oak in, you know, deep snow and sing, hold hands or, you know, candles or whatever and sing Christmas carols to the bur oak and all the animals in the park. People thought we were crazy at night, but doing these things together, that's the fuel that you need, you know, the joy to get you through the, the, the hard struggles, what people can do. So yeah, what are your skills? If you're a writer, write columns in the local newspaper, get a column. That's what I did. Started a nature column and wrote about the animals of Warner Park and people didn't know they were there. And that really helped a lot. So if you have a place you're trying to save, study that place. Another important thing is get somebody or several professors from the nearest university involved. Universities have power and people have time. And if you can get a group of students or one professor interested in a place you are trying to save, and then they come to the public meetings and bring their expertise and they testify, right? So I did that several times because I was a grad student and I had access to these people. I think another thing people can do because of climate chaos, I don't really like the term climate change anymore. It's too benign. And in Vermont, we are seeing climate chaos. Two 100-year flooding events in five months. One of my neighbors, his only daughter drowned in the first flood. She drowned. Her body wasn't found for 10 days. Because the day after the worst rains, she went out walking along the river and the bank collapsed. One of my neighbors who has the local gas station. So, I mean, like that was a Katrina for his family, his only daughter, a teacher, 25, 24, 25 years old. So the other thing people can do, and I think we have to do it everywhere, especially if you're on a coast or on a riverbank, a place with a lot of water like Vermont, give water a place at the table, find water experts to come in. Every city planner, people designing projects, they have to take into account what is going to happen with water. Our groundwater table is rising below us. We are literally going to have to get a sump pump for our home. The water is coming into our basements all, all through my neighborhood. So how can you plan projects in cities or plan building if you're not taking water into account? So I think, you know, bring water into the room, sit it down in a chair. What's it going to do? 
there are projections, right? So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna list some of these things in the study guide, but if people read the book, they can do a careful reading going through it and they will see many suggestions. But again, I think it, it depends on what do you what are your skills, first of all, and what do you want to do? What do you love to do? Because if you don't love to do something or like it at least, you're gonna burn out. Well, those are, sense? that's really good advice. I mean, the, uh, your comment about water, I think is just, uh, is yeah, mind eye opening. Cause that's what we were talking about before, you know, we started the interview is, um, sea level rise and about how, you know, we're seeing bigger and bigger floods, like you mentioned. And, uh, that's something that, you know, at least in my local community, we're in, we actually don't really talk about so much. We don't really talk about the ocean, even though it is literally, you know, at the end of the street here. And I can hear it when I go outside is we're not discussing the impacts of what that's going to look like in 10 years and how government projects are going to be impacted by it. Yeah, I that was something, you know, I never thought about again. I mean, living in New Orleans, I was below sea level, like eight, nine, 10 feet below sea level living. Never thought about it, never thought about what that meant. But it was because of Katrina. We got hit over the head with a frying pan. Hello, water's here. <laughs> what are we going to do with it? Um, and then I moved to Madison really thinking, oh, Madison has five major lakes. It's It's more a city of water than land. And I thought, surely in the land of Aldo Leopold, city planners and, and uh, city leaders are thinking about the watershed and how to live with water because Madison floods. I mean, the, the word watershed was never mentioned in any of the meetings on Warner Park. We started using it because there was flooding in our neighborhood. We were stones throw from the lake and the park, the way it was being managed was affecting affecting um, people's basements. And, and um, so, so this is, this is a common problem. I don't know why in our country. Well, I think it's part of, you know, just dominate nature. We'll just control it. Right. Uh, there's a, there's a great book. I think it's called Cadillac Desert and it's an environmental history of water management in our country. And um, you should, that's a fantastic book and it'll make you mad, but you should read it. It will help you to understand why. I mean, your city has to follow what ocean studies and you, you need marine experts in your city meetings. It's crazy to be building on a coast, anything, without taking into account what's going to happen to that coastline in 10, 20, 30 years with erosion and sea level rise. It's insane, but we're all insane right now, right? We're in denial. But Vermont is waking up fast because people just got flooded in July and now they're scared of the water again. And it's December, never floods in Vermont in December. We have snow, not rain day after day like we have now. So now people are saying, what's going to happen next July? Right? And people got federal money and they fixed their house up or whatever if they could. And it's like, well, what's going to happen is the water's going to rise where it always rises because water remembers water knows its place and it you know it's coming for us <laughs> I mean, because we have not paid attention to how water behaves its historical patterns because we just think we can control it and i mean if i learned anything with katrina it's we cannot control water we cannot that's a great point 
So while you were in Madison, Wisconsin, you created a program as part of the Wild Warner um, to educate college students who then mentored grade school students. What kind of successes did you have with that program? Well, that was that was the program that's the model for the program I have today in Burlington. Uh, it was also copied by um, Brown University in Rhode Island. I went down there two years in a row and trained a history professor who has a wonderful program there. And it, in uh, it's called Bird Buddies in Brown. And I get other people in Michigan and other states, people want to copy it. Um, the successes. Well, I think the first success it was super important to me was to meet the principal's needs. It was a principal at a middle school there, Sherman Middle School. His name was Mike Hernandez. He helped me start the program. Couldn't have done it without him. He's one of those superhero principals. Um, and he wanted mentors for his kids. And the, his school was only five miles from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, one of the best universities in the country. But there were kids who'd never been to that university. They had that, Those five miles might as well have been 5,000 miles, even though some of their parents worked there washing the floors or serving the food in the cafeteria. Um, so the first goal and success was to build that bridge, get those kids on campus, get them to see that college was accessible, that college was cool, um, and change a little bit the culture of that school in terms of how kids viewed college. That was the first success. Um, the program became wildly popular at this middle school. It became the most popular after-school club, maybe in the history of the Madison after-school program um, while I was there. And it started with just six kids the first semester. By the time I left, God, there were 55. One, one year we had 90 kids or something registered. We, we, could, we couldn't take all the kids. We just couldn't do it. But the kids loved it because it was fun. They got to be outside and they got to have this really cool college mentor. The kids just love, love their college mentors. It's the same here in, in Vermont. Um, so for the community, it was a big success. For the school, for that community partner, what the principal wanted um, which is why that program's still going on. After I left Madison, um, I trained a graduate student who took it over. In terms of successes with my students, they learned how to listen, many of them, you know, to some, a little person very different from them who had their own agenda. Um, and I, that helped them get jobs. It's, it's um, and some of them went on to become scientists. I mean, just one example of somebody I'm very proud of. She's mentioned in the book, Krista Seidel, who was an extraordinary student mentor. She just became, oh, two a month or so ago, I was in her, on Zoom, on her PhD defense. She just became Dr. Krista Seidel, and she is an international expert on avian malaria and directs a program in Hawaii conservation program. So, I mean, I didn't do that. I mean, she had many mentors, but she, she took my class, I think twice. And I hired her one summer as, um, to work in the neighborhood with the kids. And she was so extraordinarily talented before I ever met her. She was li I, literally like a David Attenborough. She was one, she is a kid. She just loved nature and learned everything. And, um, but yeah, now she's an eminent scientist. So some of my students have gone on to do extraordinary things and, the ones that I don't know about, I know that whatever job they're doing with the public, that those kids, working with those kids who weren't always easy, it taught them patience. It taught them, um, I don't know, it taught them how to just think beyond themselves, that the world's not about you, right? And everything's not going to go the way you think. 
And you better just learn to be flexible. Taught them real life, real world skills that you don't get in an ordinary class just sitting between four walls and doing what's written on the syllabus, right? Yeah, and it really seemed that, I mean, you were teaching about nature and about engaging with kids, but it seemed like your college students learned so much about like, you know, people outside of themselves because there were kids that weren't well equipped to going outside. There was the one student who had a bunch of troubles at home and wasn't necessarily engaged in doing what you're doing, but like it gave them an opportunity to, to be outside and be away, you know, and just give them a little bit of peace for a few minutes. I think, um, I think there's probably a lot more that those kids got out of the program that they didn't anticipate they were going to learn, which was really fun to read about. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, uh, so many of them in their weekly papers, they have to write a weekly kind of reflection, just were so surprised. They thought they were going to go in and be the expert teacher and that this kid was just going to soak up all their bird lore. And it ended up that a lot of the kids taught them. And so it also reversed some of, it challenged some of their stereotypes they had because most of my students were coming from backgrounds where they'd had easy access to nature or, you know, going camping and they had the gear and stuff. And the kids in my neighborhood, a lot of them didn't have that, right? So it was a lower income neighborhood that we moved to. Um, and so my students, that that was the first thing they learned was, oh, wow, not everybody can buy a, a $100 smart wool undershirt to go outside in 10 degree weather, right? A lot of the kids didn't have the gear. And so that's something I struggle with in Vermont too. But for my students, it's just a revelation, you know, um, the social justice aspect of going outside, um, especially in a cold place. It requires money and a lot of families don't have that money or to go skiing or, you know, things that many of my students are used to. So it, it challenges them to think about the socioeconomics of what's happening in, in our country. And, and so they, it, it just keeps making them think about the connections between everything. It's not just about birds and nature, right? And thinking about relationships too, you know, how important the relationships are that we have with each other with the children, with the school. I mean, if if I didn't really cultivate and, and be very careful in my relationship with the school and the school staff and listening to them and trying to meet their needs, we wouldn't be trusted with the children, right? The parents trust us, the teachers trust us. So the importance of, if you're at a university and you're working in your community of building relationships, and that's, that's helps students when they go out in the world, no matter what they do being respectful and building relationships and listening first and not going in with an agenda. I'm going to do this. And I'm the mighty university who knows what's right. I mean, that stinks, right? That's really the wrong way to do anything, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. So your title is Birding to Change the World. So how do you feel that birding has changed your world? Oh, I mean, you'll see from the book, it's given me a new world, right? Um, because I was depressed and it helped me out of a depression. Um, I, 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 I was a journalist before I'm still a journalist. I mean, basically what I see my, my world now as I'm, I'm trying to interview the birds. I'm trying to see how do they live and what do they need to stay alive and, and to share their beauty. Um, but it, birding connected me to a whole different set of people. I mean, you yourself have written about how birders are weird 
And I think that that's really true. We really are weird, right? And I've become weirder and weirder, right? Like I like to spend more time by myself and be quiet. And that's been very good for me and for my mental health. And so to meet other people who appreciate um, the great outdoors and who I think birders, I think we're positive because you step outside, you're expecting to see something beautiful and magical and maybe a miracle. So that really, that changes your, you know, your neural circuitry somehow. You're expecting something good when you step outside. Whereas a journalist in a war zone, I was expecting something bad all the time. So that, that really, birding changed my brain. It rewired my brain, um, but it just gave me a whole new life. And um, I think it sort of returned me to, to my childhood roots, right? My parents from Ireland, my dad grew up on a little farm in a tiny village outside. And uh, my dad loved birds. And then they, he moved to California to work on this orange ranch. And again, I think I told you in the beginning, I just took it for granted being outside in Southern California and growing up in a very beautiful place. And now I don't take it for granted. Now I want to know what's out there and I want to know what the names of things are and how can I help them live and thrive on the land that I have now in Vermont. Um, birds did that for me. I never really thought about the trees before or the land or the soil or the microbes. When I started, when I took that ornithology class, Madison, the, the university only had that one class. There were no other classes on birds. And I sat down and I said, okay, I found what I want to do, what I want to do now all the time. How am I going to get through the next few years? What classes can I take where I can keep learning about birds, even if there are no more birding classes or ornithology classes? So I sat down and said, I want to learn how the birds eat, what they eat. Um, I want to learn you know, what water means to the birds. I mean, everything that they depend on. So I started taking, you know, I took soil ecology. I took botany, different botany classes. I took dendrology. I mean, everything a bird depended. I took limnology and all the field courses and zoology, of course, invertebrate zoology, you know, the study of insects. Oh my God, I just love that so much. These are things I would never have dreamed of taking, but it's like, I want to understand how a bird lives. I'm going to take every class that's going to teach me that. That's going to be my PhD. Whether somebody likes it or not, that's their problem. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And I never would have learned all these things or cared about them. I was scared of bugs. I was the woman in Central America who screamed when there was a, because the cockroaches were gigantic, right? And they were all over the place. Every time I saw one or a spider, a tarantula, there were tarantulas in my bedroom. I mean, I would just go insane, right? Beating it with to death with a broom. And taking that class on insects, because that's the bird's food. For most of them, it's not the seed we buy them because we love to see them in our yard. I've got feeders right in front of me. They need insects. If otherwise they can't feed their babies, they need that soft insect protein. So because of birds, I fell in love with bugs. Now I see a bug. I don't want to kill the bug. That's a bird food. Oh, and look how beautiful it is. Oh, maybe I'm going to look at it through a, my binoculars or a magnifying glass. Look at the colors on that insect. So birds helped me fall in love with so many living things that I had never really appreciated before. I just took for granted. I could, I wrote a whole 350 pages about this, Hannah. People can read it. I mean, where would I be without birds? I'd be very sad. Maybe dead. Maybe they saved my life, you know? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, we can probably all tell similar stories about how birds are the gateway to, to the rest of the environment. And I think that's, that's what's great about birds is that they're approachable. They're everywhere. You know, they're varied and, you know, they're easy to find. So definitely can open up and change your world like you mentioned. So we've mentioned a lot of things that are in the book, but do you have like a couple key things that you were hoping that readers would take away from reading your book? Well, before the book was done, I fantasized about putting on, I wanted on the back cover, publisher didn't go for it, but something that would say, this book will make you want to run outside and hug the first Robin you see, something like that. Agent didn't like it. But I really hope that, that the book inspires love, that people see that the birds in their yard and that they think oh that bird might have been there for years because I didn't know this like I didn't know when I first saw that cardinal in New Orleans that maybe it could live 14 years or 17 years maybe that cardinal had been there a long time right that was like a revolution in my brain so um, I want it I want the book to help people fall in love with the birds and enjoy them and get some joy because people are depressed right now I feel like the pandemic was like a gigantic Katrina for everyone. It felt a lot like Katrina to me, right? And I think a lot of people have described a similar kind of depression going on two, three years. And so I hope it helps people find some joy right around them immediately. And then, then as with me, that joy inspires them to want to protect these beautiful creatures we share the planet with and do whatever we can to make sure they are still here. I mean, birds have been on the planet for, they're dinosaurs. They are the living dinosaurs. They just got tiny, they shrink, but they are dinosaurs. That's been proven, right? Are we gonna wipe out the dinosaurs on, around us? How are we gonna make sure there are birds for our children and our grandchildren? Um, so I hope that that's what the book does and kind of gets past a lot of the partisan uh, partisanship around the environment. And just, I'd like to see a party of bird lovers, right? There are so many people who love birds. Birds are a bridge. You could talk to almost anyone and people have bird stories or their grandmother loved birds or whatever. So birds can be a bridge to talk about how, what are we going to do? How are we going to come together to protect what we have and conserve what we have and love and cherish what we have. We still have a lot. Well, that is great. And I, you know, I know that um, there's a lot packed into your book and there's something for everybody in there. Um, I mean, I really tied into the, the, community aspect that you discussed, but that's just because it reflects, you know, a lot of what's going on in my life right now, but definitely with what you experienced with Hurricane Katrina and your experience getting into birds and activism, um, there's something in there for everyone. So congratulations on the pub, the future, well, the, it'll be out in two months, <laughs> the future publication. I don't know the right way to say that, but congratulations on that. It's, um, it's wonderful. And I really appreciate you taking the time to tell me and the audience about your wonderful book. Thank you, Hannah. It's an honor to talk to you. Happy new year and keep birding. Maybe I'll be out there with you someday birding. Sounds take good. me and show me your birds in your neighborhood. Sounds good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. 
So thank you so much for tuning into the Bird Nerd Book Club, and I appreciate you listening. So if you'd like to check me out on the socials, you can follow me at Hannah Goes Birdie on Instagram. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you can email me at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. 